Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Swim Kareem. Excited to have you back for another jam-packed episode. We are fully loaded. Episode 22, September 27th. If you're listening to this live, well, not live, but you know, if you're listening to it on the day that it's released, September 27th, we have a good one here. And you know, one of the things I've been talking about is I don't do a lot of lists. I, I don't do, do I don't do lists. Various reasons, but look, when it comes to lists, it's easy to do. I think it's kind of the easy way out. You all deserve a little bit more when it comes to podcasts that you're listening to. And so if I, if I did the six ways nonprofits are changing in 2023 or the five trends to look out for in the year 2024, after a while, you guys are going to be like, listen, this isn't freaking BuzzFeed. You want something more than just list and clickbait. But, but when you're, you know, as busy as I am and you're doing as many things as I'm doing, you want to be able to like sneak in a couple of lists. So every 10 episodes, I just, I just to say, I just get a little lazy and I just kind of dig in my bag and I say, listen, what are the lists that I can do? And if you had a chance to listen to us and you've been following us and some of the things that we've been working on, you know, I, the last time I did a list, let me just make sure here, I'm, I'm looking in real life, you thought I would have had this beforehand. The last list that I did was June 7th. So we've done 10, 12 episodes between then, and I did the top five nonprofit myths successful episode actually one of our most popular downloaded episodes and i said listen i'm gonna do another five and so i'm just gonna call it the top 10 if you want the first five nonprofit lists go back to episode god like what was episode 10 uh top five nonprofit list i put that in the show notes this way you can kind of get easy access to it and this is a perfect time and i'm going to seattle tomorrow me, my girlfriend, we're going out there, Pacific Northwest, just to get away, get something different, celebrating a birthday, her birthday. So super excited for her. Happy birthday, baby girl. Love it. And golly, we're going to have a really good time. So what a perfect time to dive in to, to list. And I want I have five more nonprofit myths I'm excited to get to here in about two, three minutes. But first, if you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram. I'm messing around a little bit on TikTok. You can also follow us on TikTok. They're both at the Nonprofit Insider. We've been, honestly, we, we've been exploding. The downloads are up. The, the interest is up. I've had a lot of people reach out to me with more nonprofit stories, so I'm hoping to come on the other side uh, here a fall and winter with a lot of nonprofit stories. I had a friend who's been following us pretty much from the jump. I mean, she's been following us pretty much since the first episode. And she said, Swim, your last episode, episode 21, Telemarketers, Fraud Charities, in the book review was the best episode yet. So go back into the vault, listen to the previous episode, episode 21. And what I want you to do, I want you to leave me, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to leave me a review. It's probably the new thing I'm going to really start pushing for. I want more reviews because I think right now, at least on Apple, we have six reviews. I'm trying to get to 10. 
which is really, it's not a whole lot if you think about it, but when it comes to reviews, they can be a little bit harder as compared to like just rating it or compared to following on Instagram. Leave a review. That's something I'm going to be pushing for. I want to try to get the 10 in the next month, try to get the 12 in the next uh, month and a half and just keep going from there because if you like what you're listening to, we want other people to listen to it as well. So be sure to leave a review. All right. Beyond that, let me think. Is there anything else? Change my mic here. Here, to get that. Oh, yeah, that's that background noise. All right, I got my mic looking good. Let's hop to it. Myth number one, and let's just go ahead and get into it. Let's not even waste any time. Let's just, let's jump into the deep end. Myth number one, only liberals work in nonprofit. No. <laughs> this is the nonprofit insider, not the liberal nonprofit insider, not the I only lean left nonprofit insider. Listen, I lean left. I, I, I'm, I will graciously admit that. But to think that only people of a democratic or liberal or left leaning vibe work in a nonprofit space is really disingenuous. And look, think of some of the biggest nonprofits that you know of, but maybe you don't even really consider. NRA, National Rifle Association, the Heritage Foundation, America, Americans for Tax Reform, the Catholic League, the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police. These are nonprofits, and I can go on, National Taxpayer Union, the John Locke Foundation, the John Olin Foundation, a lot of foundations, because, uh, you know, rich people have a lot of money. Rich people tend to be more conservative, so they start foundations. Anyway, to, to think that only a certain demographic as it relates to the political leanings and a nonprofit leans of a certain way, it, it's, just, it's just false. And I think one of the things that you're seeing a lot in conversations with the DEI conversation, I was talking to a really good mentor of mine. She's been a mentor of mine for two years plus. She's saying one of the things I think a lot of people may not realize in the DEI conversation is we're not just talking about the, and it's a cor- cor- corroborated aspect of the idea of wokeness in America, you know, yada, 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 is we're not just saying that only a certain person or color or belief is a part of the DEI conversation. No, no, no. Everyone is a part of the DEI conversation. And she was saying that there are a lot of people from her point of view in the conservative mindset that think they are included. It's like, no, 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 no. I've worked at a lot of nonprofits where I think we do a, a not good job of bringing people from a more right-leaning, conservative mindset into the conversations of nonprofit management, nonprofit missions, and the forwarding of society as a whole. And it's not just nonprofit organizations like the Heritage Foundation or the Catholic League that that are big. You can actually be a person that has a conservative view and you can work for breast cancer awareness organizations. You can work with the Autism Society of California. You can work with the local trade or unions rep, which may be a nonprofit. There are a lot of people in the nonprofit space that are conservative. And even as someone that identifies as a lot more liberal leaning, 
That doesn't mean I look at the nonprofit space and say there's only liberal individuals working in this space. And so for you folks out there that are a more conservative leaning vibe, I recognize that. And I think a lot of folks that are on the outside looking in may not really think to themselves that you can be conservative and be in the nonprofit space. Think of the, I always I say this almost every single episode. Think of the biggest nonprofits that you know at this moment in time. I can guarantee you that if you have a nonprofit that, even if your nonprofit just has more than 100 paid staff members, if, you're, if your nonprofit organization has 200, 2,000, 20,000, 50,000 employees, they are, you are going to have a number of individuals that have a conservative leaning vibe in those organizations. And I think it's a big, honestly, disservice that we don't put that at the forefront of a lot of aspects of nonprofit. Because I think there are a lot of people that are a conservative view, that have a lot of great ideas that don't feel like they're welcome in the nonprofit space. So no, 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 no. There are a lot of conservative people in the nonprofit space. And you might not know this, but you probably work next to someone that is of a conservative view. And they work right across the street, uh, right across the block, or maybe in the same cubicle as you. Myth number two. Volunteers can do the job of paid staff. Out of all, out of these five nonprofit myths that you're going to hear today, this is probably the one I hear the least amount. Kind of going back to that June 5th episode, I talked about some of the different like myths that exist and how some are a little bit more prevalent than, than, than most. This isn't one I hear a whole lot, but I think there is a deep connection to some people in society that say, Oh, you know, volunteers can do the, can do that job that a paid staff member does. Or if you're a nonprofit that has a just let's just say your nonprofit has 10 paid employees. There are many folks that may go into that nonprofit as volunteers, as board members, as 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 supporters, financial supporters that say you have 10 paid staff member, but we think you could actually get away with only six paid staff members because we think volunteers can do the jobs of those six or those four people. This has a very, very deep connection to the overhead conversation. And I mentioned in the previous episode that uh, uh, Charity Navigator says that they tend to look at nonprofits and give them higher ratings if they have overhead percentage that is 15% or less. So if you spend 90% of your nonprofit's programs and expenses or or money on programs and expenses and you you send 10% on overhead, that's pretty good. But then there was another organization that says that's closer to 65%. I personally, as I mentioned in the previous episode, I like to see about 75% programs and then 25% overhead. But you know what? It, you know, it, it, it could be here or there. It depends on the situation, how long you've been in operation, who's at the helm, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea that volunteers can do the job of pay staff, that, that 
could be true, but I think a lot of it resides in the aspects of overhead, where we think we should be more efficient in the nonprofit space. We should be in a position where our nonprofit has closer to 100% than 80% or 70%. And sometimes, hey, sometimes, yeah, there could be a redundancy in the number of staff members that could be replaced by volunteers to a degree. But a lot of times it's not that simple. And I think it demeans and devalues the aspects that staff members bring to a nonprofit organization. It, you simply you simply cannot be sustainable as a nonprofit if you want to A, grow, and B, accomplish the mission you set out to be in the best way possible. Now, if I live in War, West Virginia, shout out to War, that legit, I've been to a city in West Virginia, it's called War, W-A-R, and if you run a food bank there and it is 100% volunteer-based, you know, bravo to you. In that type of situation, you might be in a better role to have that organization be 100% volunteer-run. We see this with social clubs a little bit more that may use their money for scholarships or foundations and things like that. But any nonprofit that's worth its salt that is really trying to change the world or the community, you're going to have paid staff. And volunteers simply can't jump in and handle all of that because volunteers don't want to fucking do all of that. All right? Staff members, they show up. They, they are accountable. There's a certain level of decorum that comes with a paid staff member that volunteers simply don't have to do, want to do, and shouldn't have to do. Myth number three, and honestly, this is a this is one I could probably talk about this myth for a solid twenty minutes. I could bring on a guest to talk just about this one myth because this is one I know from people in the nonprofit space. They freaking love it. Myth number three: there is less internal politics in the nonprofit space than other industries. If this was a, if you could see my face right now, I'm simply shaking my head. SMH. Do people still say SMH? <laughs> I don't know if they still say SMH, but I know they say uh I Y K Y K hashtag I Y K Y K. If you know, you know. <laughs> in the nonprofit space, this honestly is one that is under the radar. It's underrated how much politics are involved. And and listen, for for my money, I think politics in the nonprofit space may only be second to actual politics. Now, do, do politics happen in government? Yes, obviously that's what much of the government is all about. Do politics happen in for-profit industries? W without a doubt. I mean, there's just, there's just no doubt about it, yes. But in the nonprofit space, there is a shocking, and I mean shocking, amount of politics that happen in this world. Susie hates Melissa because 
Melissa chose Khalif to be the lead of a new project or because Melissa chose Khalif to be uh, to, to get the new job that just opened up, even though Susie has been in her role two years longer than Khalif, there are instances time and time and time again of people in the nonprofit space really fighting like Mitch McConnell and McCarthy and Clint. I'm trying to think of just random politicians here. <laughs> But there are a lot of instances of politics being a very big part of the nonprofit space. And I think one of the most amazing aspects and most surprising aspects is it's at nonprofits of all scale. Because you're talking money, you're talking recognition, you're talking uh, pride. I mean, you're talking a lot of things that come in the nonprofit space community that you see in many industries and sometimes even more so. So you can be a nonprofit of 12 people or a nonprofit of 1,200 people and you see and you feel a lot of moments of politics because there's feelings involved, there's pride involved. Um, there's just an aspect of, there's just an aspect of being human. In the nonprofit space. And with anything, power can really be a big part of the nonprofit world because how are you getting money from your city council? I just had someone send me a fair, I'm trying to get the, I'm trying to get her uh, to, to share this story here on the show. She, she shared with me a story about kind of battling with the local city nonprofit on a couple of different aspects of this nonprofit that was starting. There's money, there's respect, there's power, there's influence, there's status in communities, whether it's a community of 80,000 in a local county or if it's on a national scale. And I've I received a lot of people who said, oh, Swim, I loved your August 30th episode where you talked about nonprofit clicks because politics is so much more than just we're going this direction and we're not going that direction. It's a lot of aspects of who who's at the top, who's leading, who's following, what measures are we trying to do? And it all circulates into the aspects of being human and being in the mission. Myth number four, there's no upward mobility in the nonprofit space. If you had, if you think of a scale, zero to 100, and think of it as a myth scale, where zero is the myth that there's no money in the nonprofit space. I, I've been saying this from the very first episode of the Nonprofit Insider. If you haven't had a chance, go back, listen to the very first episode. I, I would almost cringe to listen to it. It's so raw. 55,338. That's the number that the, the Bureau of Labor of Statistics says is the average amount of money people in the nonprofit space make. So imagine you have a scale where one or zero is there's no money in the nonprofit world. One, there's a lot of money, not only in terms of like the ways people can get paid. There are a lot of 
top brass nonprofit people that like a lot of money. But there's a lot of money that flows into the nonprofit space just as a whole. Remember when the Notre Dame was was had burned down and Apple was like, oh yeah, we'll give like $600 million. So imagine that scale where zero is there's no money in the nonprofit space and 100 uh, is, is a myth that's closer to true. And I think a, a prime example is the myth that mission is key. Well, it's not really a myth in the nonprofit space. It's not the one all be all in the nonprofit space, but mission is pre- is pretty high up there. If you had that scale from zero to, to 100, I'd probably say at 85 is this myth. It can be a little more true in the nonprofit space. Now, it can, depending on the industry you're in, the company you work for, you know, if you work at a company of only, you know, nine people and it's mainly run by a family business, the chances of you getting to be the lead person is slim when chances are the daughter of the business owner is going to take over the business. You, you get what I'm saying? But there are a lot of ways in the nonprofit space to, to have upward mobility. And I think the big thing for a lot of it is the job that you're in, of course, like that particular space in the nonprofit world, the location that you're in. I think that's a really second big one and your willingness to hop around. We know that 10% of all people that work in the labor market, work in a nonprofit space, we, we know that. But a lot of nonprofits can feel kind of small in a lot of respects. And so the upward mobility possibility does feel a little bit slim when you think of like the largest nonprofit and how many workers they have, 80,000. Right. I'm trying to think, was it, I think Feeding America, and they're a network, they're not even, you know, they're like a network of nonprofits that constitute this particular organization. Well, I know at the local T-Mobile, uh, and when I say local, I mean national, but you, I know if I go to T-Mobile, they have 350,000 employees, so the ideas of upward mobility can be easier if you work at Microsoft that has, you know, I'm just making up numbers now, 200,000 uh, employees or 150,000 employees versus if your nonprofit only has 20,000 employees. There's just more chance in the nonprofit space or the government space because they are a larger percentage of the labor market. But if you're willing to hop around, if you're willing to change locations, I think this one gets mitigated. But out of all these myths, this is the one that's a little bit closer to true, in my opinion, than not true. And myth number five, employees can't make it in the real world. Bullshit. (laughs) I mean, it's bullshit, right? One of my favorite books, I think I've mentioned this on a previous episode or two. One of my favorite books is by a a gentleman. What is his name? Hold on. Let me look it up here. here. It's, uh, see, I should have been doing my notes. Harry Frankfurt. I was going to say Frank Frankfurt, but that's not his name. He's a philosopher. And in 2005, he, he came out with a book called On Bullshit. 
I'll put it in the show notes. I got to get some referral links because I'm, I'm making a lot of recommendations to a lot of other people's work. I need to get a kickback on this. But he wrote, he wrote this book called On Bullshit. It's 44 pages. Is it 44 or 80? I think it's like, four, it depended on the size of the book. It's like 80 pages, 44 pages, dependent, right? It's a very easy read. And he talks about the phenomenon that is bullshit and how we all know for the most part, or we think we know when something is bullshit, but it can sometimes be hard to point out. We think we do a good job of, of, of sniffing it out. The idea that people in the nonprofit space can't make it in the quote-unquote real world, it, 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 just never ma- it just never makes any sense to me. Because I, don't, I, think, I think it has less to do with the ideas that people in the nonprofit space can't make it in the in the real world, I think it has less to do with the ideas of quote unquote making it, and I think it has more to do with the aspects of do you even like it. And, and I'll just give you a prime example. I used to work in car sales, and funny enough, I'm going. To, I'm on a plane tomorrow, going to Seattle. When I first moved to Seattle with my ex-wife, I worked at a car dealership called Stadium Nissan. I'll give you a hint what we sold. We sold Nissans. And I ended up working at a couple other car dealerships, you know, at a certain time. And one of the things of being in the for-profit space and specifically in the sales space is it, it really caused me to have a deep appreciation of being in a nonprofit space. At the end of the day, it wasn't a matter of making it or, or anything like that. It was just a matter of I just like being in the nonprofit space versus the for-profit space. And I like certain aspects of the for-profit space. I'm sure if you go to a stockbroker in San Francisco or a venture capitalist in Austin, Texas, and you say, hey, I want you to work in a nonprofit space, they'd probably say, I just don't like it. In those types of instances, we wouldn't say, oh, they can't make it in the nonprofit space. We would never really say or look at it like that. We would just say, oh, it wasn't for them. He or she didn't enjoy it. He, she, them, or they, was, it just wasn't for them. It just, it just didn't vibe with them. And I remember being in the car sales. One of the, the things I hated the most about being in the auto sales, probably more than anything else, was we had this thing where you're supposed to work on the last day of the month. You, you, you've heard this before where people will say the best time to buy a car is towards the end of the month with the last day of the month being the best. That actually is kind of true because a lot of car dealerships will be motivated to get um, final car sales so they can hit metrics. If you sell you know, if you sell Ford and if you sell one more Ford F50 on that last day of the month, your your dealership gets a bunch of bonuses from national headquarters, from the national Ford headquarters. So if you sell that one car, you you can sell that car at a four or five thousand dollar loss because maybe the national Ford dealership association will give you thirty thousand dollars because you sold X number of cars, whatever the case may be. So the idea that the, the, the car dealerships will tell their sales those their sales workers if it's the last day of the month. Even if that's your normal day off, and I had many instances where the last day of the month was on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, I'm supposed to be off, 
I'm supposed to be hanging out with my wife and, you know, enjoying Seattle. And they're like, no, 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 no. We want you to come in. And it's like, this is my own, this is my, I get two, two days off a week because I'm working this thing bell to bell. Now I'm on a rant right now, but in the car salesman, car dealership world, they have this thing called bell to bell where you open the car dealership and you, you start and you stay till close. So if your car dealership opens at nine, you're there from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. And that's a, and if you sell a car, you know, at 7.30, you can be there. There are many days, I'm really ranting now, but there are many days where I would sell a car because, you know, people get off of work. They got lives. I get it. People get off of work. They come in. They, they go to buy a Nissan Altima. It's 8 o'clock at night. You got to wait for the fight. You got to clean the car, put gas in it. You got to show all the people the bells and whistles of their new car. You got to wait for financing. So there were days where I would not leave the car dealership till 10 o'clock at night, 1030 at night. Uh, I remember one time I stayed at the car dealership till 1230 at night, midnight, selling cars. I couldn't, according to people, I couldn't make it in the real world in that instance because I was just, I just don't like this. There, this does not give me joy showing up at nine in the morning and leaving at 11 o'clock at night just to sell one car to make a $3,000 commission. So it, that's not true because there are a lot of instances of people in the quote unquote real world. And when we say that, we mean the for-profit world. There are many people in the for-profit world that could not make it in the non-profit world. They would say it's too emotional, it's too draining, it's too hard, it's too touchy-feely, it's this, it's that, and the third. So no, 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 no. That is not a that is that is far from a myth. There are a lot of people in the nonprofit space that would do great in the for-profit space. And there are a lot of people in the nonprofit space that really wouldn't even want to deal with it. All right, those are your top 10 nonprofit myths. And you're probably, again, you're probably saying, Swim, you only told five myths. I know I only told five myths. You have to go back to episode, what? I don't even, episode 10. I keep messing up here. Go back to episode 10, top five nonprofit myths. 10, 11, 12, something like that. Because you got to listen to those first five, and then you got to listen to these second five. Be sure, again, follow us on TikTok. Hopefully, I'll have some videos up by now. <laughs> I might have one video. Follow us on Instagram at the Nonprofit Insider. And be sure to leave a review. Seriously, I'm going to start reaching out to people and be like, look, leave us a review. I'm on a plane to Seattle. Wish me luck. Give me all your uh, your things that I should do in the Pacific Northwest. I love the Emerald City. Excited to go out there. All right, everyone. We'll see you in the next episode. Take care.